So Mark 15, starting in verse 1. We're going to chunk it up a little bit as we walk through. This is what it says. It says, Very, very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin made their plans. So they bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Okay, time out real quick right there. Okay, as we look at verse 1, we need to recognize that these group of people, they decided the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leaders, they decided that they need to call a team huddle. Why did they not need to call a team, a team huddle? Because they needed to make their plans. Seems kind of strange. They have already said Jesus is guilty of crimes that he didn't commit, like we talked about last week. But now we need to make our plans for how it is that we are going to carry out the sentencing of Jesus through the Roman authorities. Those are the plans they're making. Hey, let's all get on the same page because we're about to do something that's technically illegal. We're about to condemn a guy who's technically innocent, but we need him gone. So let's make sure that we can kind of figure out our plans. Verse 2, introduction of Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? Asked Pilate. You have said so, Jesus replied. The chief priest accused him of many things. So again, Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they are accusing you of? But Jesus still made no reply. And Pilate was amazed. So the truth of the story is that it isn't really the trial before Pilate. It's actually the trial of Pilate. As you're looking at, at the, the entire thing. Pilate, as we read, he does his best to avoid this entire issue. Pilate wants nothing to do with this. Pilate isn't trying to make a name for himself by condemning Jesus. He's not looking for a power play. He simply wants nothing to do with Jesus or this entire trial at all. So he tries his best to avoid the issue. Then when he can't avoid the issue, he does his best to simply avoid responsibility then. That's so we're going to see how it plays out. Neither of, the, neither of these two things end up mattering, though. Because at the end of this entire story, the religious leaders force this guy into a verdict. They force his hand. He has no, no choice, seemingly. And the verdict is actually stated every single time Christians say what we call the Nicene Creed. If you know your church history, Nicene Creed, it came about, it was put in place back in about 325 A.D. You're like, well, what's a creed? Okay, a creed is essentially theology a long time ago. They used to recite creeds and say creeds to say this is what we believe. So, okay, we've read this in Scripture. We've heard this in our oral traditions. And so now we're going to come up with these creeds to make sure we're all on the same page regarding the study and understanding of God. And so these creeds, a lot of them, a lot of them coincide with different councils that they would, they would like have a whole group of guys come together and they would talk about and argue about theology and they would say, okay, and this is what we believe. And so Nicene Creed is then uh, put into place in 325. And this, this creed states largely what Christians believe. And in the Nicene Creed, there's a portion that talks about Jesus specifically. So I'm going to read that portion. It says, for us and our salvation, he came down from heaven. He is Jesus in this. He came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made human. Everybody agrees with that, right? That's Christmas, right? Jesus comes, made incarnate, Holy Spirit, Mary, made human. Then we jump to his death. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day he rose again, according to the scriptures. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will never end. Okay, so 
We have two humans mentioned in that. God the Father is mentioned, the Holy Spirit is mentioned, Jesus is mentioned, but there's two humans that are mentioned. The first is Jesus' mom, okay? We like Mary, we hang out with Mary, like Mary's cool, we, we look favorably upon Mary, okay? But then the other human, the only other human that is mentioned in here is a dude by the name of Pontius Pilate, okay? This guy that is a small, tiny blip on the radar of everything else that is going down will forever now live in infamy for a decision that he was forced into making, a decision that he wanted nothing to do with. But when the cards are down on the table, he completely and totally loses his, background, his backbone. rather. So it's largely this verdict lives in infamy forever. And not just in scripture, but it's like the very cornerstone of our, of our belief system. Remember, the Sanhedrin had already made the decision that Jesus was going to die. They did that back in chapter 14. Now it's a matter of putting it through the proper channels to make sure that the Pharisees were going to be above reproach. That's the plans that we see in verse 1. In verse 2, the, the trial begins. And there's just a ton of like confused and misleading accusations going on in this point. Like beyond that, they're all kind of generalized. Not only are they like kind of like, you know, misleading, but they're just, they're just kind of generalized. Verse 3 actually tells us that they just accused him of many things. After reading Mark... My guess is, is that, you know, all of Mark's stories are real close, real tight. He leaves out some details in order for the sake of the narrative to move forward, which is what he does on a regular basis. My guess is this is kind of what Mark is doing at this point. They have already talked about the accusations back in Mark chapter 14. So why include them again? We're not going to include them again. We're just going to say they, they, they accused him of, of many things. But regardless of all these things, all of these things are designed to paint Jesus in a bad light, specifically paint Jesus in a bad light politically. Kind of like a revolutionary, a troublemaker. Right? From other gospels, we know that they talked to Pilate about Jesus telling people not to, to pay the tax to Caesar, which, which wasn't true. And someone who claimed that Jesus, was a, Jesus came to be an earthly ruler. These are actually the deciding charges against Jesus. When Jesus eventually does get, get charged at the end of all this, those are the two charges that he was going to do his best to usurp power from Caesar and set up his own earthly kingdom. That's largely why he's going to end up hanging on, a, hanging on a tree. They painted him as a revolutionary against Rome. At this point in the story, Mark kind of glosses over a really big chunk of this. Okay, if you look at the, the book of Luke, and you don't have to turn there, but, but the gospel of Luke talks about how Pilate at this point sends Jesus away. And he sends Jesus away to a guy by the name of Herod. Okay, Herod is kind of Pilate's boss in a sense. Pilate, what he's doing here is he's kicking the can down the road. right? He's like, look, I don't want to make that decision. I don't get paid enough to make that decision. I'm going to send him up to Herod and make Herod make that decision. right? We've all probably been there before, especially if you're not like the owner or the boss or anything like that. You're like, look... I don't make enough to deal with how angry you are right now. I'm going to kick you up to my parents, right? Or kick you up to my, my boss, rather, whatever it may be. So that's what Pilate is doing right now. He's like, I don't want to make the call. I'm going to send him to Herod to, to make the call. And so largely what happens is Jesus goes to Herod. Herod wants to see signs and wonders like, hey, Jesus, I've heard about you. You're a cool little sideshow. Like, make something happen. Make something happen. Jesus doesn't talk. He stays silent. Herod gets bored with Jesus at that point, doesn't find any fault with him. And so because of the fact he doesn't find any fault with him and he's not entertaining him, Herod sends him back to Pilate. 
That's probably why Mark doesn't include it in the narrative at all. It's simply because, like, there is nothing that actually happens as he goes off to Herod that pertains to Jesus' trial. But it is an interesting tidbit as well. So, even though Mark doesn't include any of this, because he's so brief, he does kind of continue to hit the main points. Right? Pilate is incredibly cynical. He knows the Jews are actually only accusing Jesus out of envy. And regardless of those things, Pilate just wants to get out of there with the Jews happy with him. Let's keep reading in verse 6. It says, Now it was the custom at the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate knowing it was out of self-interest the chief priests had handed Jesus over. But the chief priests, they stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. So we see in verse 6, there's still one possibility that Jesus could get out of this entire thing. Jesus knew this wasn't going to happen, but there's still one possibility where Jesus could get out of it without being killed. He knew he was on his way to death. But Pilate, again, at this point, he tries to shirk his responsibility. He tries to give it away. There was a time-honored tradition at that point. It wasn't the law. It wasn't religious. It, like, they didn't have to do this. But when there was times of festivity and celebration, religious or not, not religious, political leaders at that point could be like, you know what, we have some political prisoners. In order to make people happy, even happier because we're celebrating, we're going to let some of these people go. Whoever it is, who do you want? Who do you want to have happened? And so now we have a guy by the name of Barabbas who enters onto the scene. We don't know a ton about this guy, Barabbas, outside of kind of what's, what's included. We can assume he was a zealot, and we know that he was captured after some sort of run-in with the authorities, and deaths were involved. We don't know if Barabbas was the person who killed other people. We don't know. We know he was with them. Most people assume he was somebody who killed other people. But because of that fact, the fact that people were killed, Barabbas' fate is sealed also. Barabbas is also on his way to death. We talked a few months back about a uh, particular party of people at the time who hated Rome, right? They were the zealots. I don't know if you remember that. We talked about different political parties that were happening. And they were the zealots who hated Romans. Any Roman that they saw, they refused to pay taxes to Caesar. And if they saw a Roman guard walking around near them, they would most likely pull out a knife and stab them. Okay, those were the zealots. Barabbas is the very epitome and embodiment of that group of people. As a matter of fact, he's an, he's an insurrectionist, right? He came by, a bunch of people, were there, there was some sort of run-in, some people were killed. But the reality is, is because there's this entire group of people Barabbas is actually incredibly popular. He's popular with that group of people specifically. He would have been hailed as a hero. Why? Because, man, he's doing his best to try to overthrow Rome. And so Barabbas, oftentimes, especially like if you've seen the Passion of the Christ, they paint him as like this gross guy, and like there's this like depiction between Jesus and Barabbas and all that stuff. Barabbas actually would have been very, very, very popular specifically with that group of people. But because he was so popular, the outcome of this choice between the two, Jesus and Barabbas, was pretty obvious already. But the Pharisees wanted to double down. The Pharisees wanted to make sure the verdict that they wanted to have handed in was going to happen. So the chief priests, they, they start stirring up the 
crowd. They made sure that, that Pilate was going to choose Barabbas to be released and not Jesus. And this is where we need to come back what, to what Pilate was hoping for here. Right? Pilate wanted nothing to do with what was happening with Jesus. He sent him away only to find Jesus to come back from his boss. Then he tried to free him. That wasn't going to fly either. Instead, he ends up freeing a man who most likely killed Romans, who definitely didn't pay taxes to Caesar, encouraged other people not to pay taxes to Caesar, and wanted to overthrow the government. Rather than a guy who simply said, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and God's what is God's, a guy who was an actual threat to Rome, Barabbas, they end up releasing instead of a guy in Jesus who was only a threat to the chief priest who simply wanted him dead. That's what's going on here. And on one hand, Pilate genuinely wishes to escape from like a difficult position by releasing Jesus. On the other hand, Pilate can't resist covering his own back with the Jewish leaders who have placed him in such an impossible situation. If you read back verses 9 and 10, specifically verse 10, it exemplifies the entire thing where Pilate knows what he is about to do is wrong. He says, knowing it was out of self-interest that the chief priest handed Jesus over to him. Like, what? why is he there? Oh, a personal vendetta to be handled. Not because a crime was actually committed. So he ends up freeing Barabbas, and then he is now stuck with the question in verse 12 where it says, what shall I do then? He's asking the crowd, what shall I do then? with the one that you call the king of the Jews, Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. And listen to Pilate's response here. Why? What crime has he committed? Asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. And verse 15, the very embodiment of who Pilate is, wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. As we read this, we need to understand a couple things. One of the first things that I think we need to understand is crucifixion is not a normal death for Jews. I think we think biblical times and we're like, oh yeah, well they just crucified everybody for capital offenses. This was abnormal. Crucifixion for a Jewish person was abnormal. So for a Roman citizen... Under Roman rule, death would have been cutting someone's head off. <laughs> Welcome to church. Um, but that, that would have been the capital punishment. That would have been death, is, is beheading somebody. If you're a Roman citizen under Roman rule, that's how Paul ends up dying at the end of the book of Acts. At least I think church tradition says that, that he gets, he gets beheaded. Um, but crucifixion was saved for people who were foreigners in the land. Jesus isn't a foreigner in the land. His home is Galilee, which is under Roman occupation, which is what we, just, what we just talked about, meaning he was technically a citizen of Rome. But beyond the fact that he was a citizen of Rome, he was also Jewish, which meant if there was a capital offense that was happening against God, against the Jews, their laws still stood up. So Jesus, as a Jew, should have been stoned to death for these offenses. That's what it talks about all the time. The idea of a, a normal death for Jews was, was stoning. Actually, if you look through the Old Testament, if you're going through your Bible in a rear, in a rear hopefully not that, Bible in a year, um, you would have probably gotten through uh, the first couple books of the Bible. 
But this comes up in Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy specifically. That if someone earned death by defiling God in some way, if a Jewish person earned death by defiling God in some way, they were supposed to be stoned outside the camp. We see it show up in the Gospels as well, right? Where the lady, she comes and they're about to stone her to death. That's what was going to happen. Why? Because she committed a capital offense against God. Here's the interesting thing. After death by stoning, oftentimes what the Jews would do is they would take that person's body and they would go hang them on a pole or hang them on a tree until the evening. And that meant that that person was, was cursed. That was a sign that that person had grieved God and was now under God's curse. This is why Pilate is so startled when they yell to crucify Jesus. Because this isn't how things were supposed to go down. The Jews were supposed to take care of it themselves. And if he's a Roman citizen, fine, let's cut his head off. Crucifixion, crucifixion was, was saved for people who were foreigners of the land, saved for, for, for spies, saved for slaves. Jesus was none of those things. So why crucifixion? Well, I think God's providence actually has a whole lot to do with it. Because remember, if a Jewish person hung on a tree... Until night, it was a sign that they had grieved God and was under his curse. That's what Deuteronomy 21, 22, and 23 tells us. It says, if someone guilty of a capital offense is put to death and their body is exposed on a pole, you must not leave the body hanging on the pole overnight. Be sure to bury it that same day because anyone who is hung on a pole is under God's curse. You want to know why we read the Old Testament? Here's a great example why. Why? Because you can already see the imagery bubbling up, Right? God's curse, this person who's hung on the pole is bearing God's curse. All right, cool. Well, let's read Galatians 3.13. What does that have to do with us? Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. How did he become a curse? He hung on a, on a tree for every single one of us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. See the Old Testament and the New Testament? That's how they work together. So in this story, God continues to use regular individuals to accomplish his plan, both good and bad. And like I said, Pilate is shocked by this. He is dumbfounded by this. Verse 14, he asked them why. He even asked them, like, what crime had he committed? And the people are full-on mob mentality at this point. And they just shout him down. They just shout him, like, like well, what did he do? What crime? Crucify him. Well, why? What did he do? Crucify him. No good answer. No reason for it, just full mob mentality. And so what does Pilate do? He loses his backbone at this point. And verse 15 says, wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and he handed him over to be crucified. Pilate had a complete and total disregard for both truth and justice. He knew Jesus was innocent, but he flogged him and sent him to be crucified anyway. Why? Simply through a desire to make the Jews like him. Self-preservation. I want people to like me still. And it can be tricky because as I was reading through this, I, I started to feel bad for Pilate almost. Like all these people are conspiring around him. And man, he had no other choice. Like he was backed into a corner and even though God knew what he was going to do, make, make no mistake, when all the cards were on the table and it was 
when it was Pilate's reputation on the line, he was okay with killing an innocent man. He was okay with murdering the Messiah of the world just to make sure his own back was covered, just to make sure his reputation was still set in gold. That's all he cared about. So let's get back to the start then. Envy and self-preservation. Envy is what brings this entire thing to a head. If you look at verse 10, it's all about envy. That's all, that's all it is. The Pharisees, the religious leaders, they were so envious of Jesus' following. They were so envious of Jesus' teaching. They are so envious of Jesus' signs and his wonders that they wanted nothing more than to kill him just so they could get back to the top of the pecking order, just so they were once again the most respected teachers with the largest following in Jerusalem. That's all they cared about, envy. So envy is what got Jesus to Pilate. And self-preservation is what takes Jesus to the cross. Pilate still had a choice to make. He still had an option, and he washed his hands of the entire situation because self-preservation made him a coward. And self-preservation makes us cowards. People's opinions of him, fear of man, turning on his back on, on what was right was ultimately what led Jesus to the sentencing of the cross. But let's not confuse these sinful individuals with the macro narrative that's happening, with what God is doing in the midst of this entire thing. Is the entire thing below reproach and disgusting and a sham? Absolutely. This trial, the whole thing, is completely and totally absurd. But it wasn't the sin, just the sins of the Pharisees that got him to the cross. It wasn't just the sins of Pilate that got him beaten and, senses, and sentenced. It was the sin of all mankind that Jesus about, was about to take on that got the nails put into his hand and the nail put into his feet. I think that's why we often miss when we read this, oftentimes the the believer will kind of vilify Pilate and the Pharisees because the micro-narrative of the story really kind of draws you in. You're like, man, I can't believe this guy. I can't believe those guys would do something like that. But the reality of the story is that all of the sins that led to this point in time were about to be taken care of on the cross. Why? Because God had planned it from the beginning. All of our sins that forced Jesus to come to earth in the first place we're going to be taken care of on that cross. And while Pilate ultimately landed him there, our sins are the entire reason he had to go in the first place. Remember that first part of the Nicene Creed that I talked about where Jesus, he's, he, he comes out, he's, he, he, he turned, he's turned into man, right? The entire reason that part of the Nicene Creed exists, the entire reason that Jesus came in the first place was for this moment in time. And even though all of that is true, and the heaviness of this story is true, and the heaviness of last week is true, and next week when he dies on that tree and becomes a curse for us is true, like even though all of that is true, it, like we are still envious, and we are still all about our own self-preservation and making sure that we can live a life of ease and making sure that my name is taken care of, my fortune is taken care of. 
making sure that I have just as much as everybody else because I deserve just as much as, as everybody else. Church, what would it look like if rather than doing our best to ensure a life of ease and non-confrontation that we decided rather to, to stick our neck out and rock the boat just a little bit so Jesus' name could be known? Would we recognize that, that our sins placed him there and that, that because of his endurance of the cross and, and resurrection three days later, that there is now hope for all of us. And that hope shouldn't be kept to ourselves. That hope should be shared with those that God has already supernaturally and strategically placed in your life. Right? We have some of those cars. I know most of them were taken by first service and they didn't, we didn't order enough in the first place. But man, if you have a card near you, if you have a cell phone near you, if you have social media near you, can I just say, as heavy as these last week, this week, and next week are going to be, you, we're all going to be in, in pink and purple for the first time all year, and we're going to be here on Easter, and we're going to sing about hope and the resurrection of Christ and the fact that, that, that every single one of us now gets to spend eternity with Jesus because of what he endured for us. Those cards are not for you. Those invites aren't just so we can say we had X number of people here at the church. We celebrate Easter, and we're going to celebrate Easter great like we always do. We're going to talk about resurrection and hope like we always do. But our hope would be if there are people in your life who don't know that their sins contributed to Jesus being on the cross, that they would come to know that and then we would come to offer them a hope and a future, what God, what Jesus has given us, has planned for us, and that's eternity with him. That's the reality of what's happening is we have this micro-narrative and these things that we can learn from, but there's a macro-narrative going on where God in this story is redeeming all of mankind through his son who came to bear it for us. And it's beautiful and it's hopeful and it's heavy. Let's pray. God, this is a hard, it, this is heavy stuff. And this is, I, I, like there is a burden as we share these things. And it's not fun as we share these things. And even, even the, the idea of crowds just yelling, crucify him, crucify him, is heavy. And God, we recognize that, that, that all of this, all of this was known from the beginning. As the redemption plan for us to get to you. that it feels heavy and it almost feels shameful because of the fact that we contributed to it. But God, even as we contributed to it, we now have hope. We've now been redeemed if we've come to a saving faith in you. And so God, if there are people here who have not yet said yes to you, have not made a profession of faith, if that's you today, with heads still bowed, with eyes still closed, I would, I would encourage you to pray along with me and simply say, Father, A, I admit that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior Amen. and that my sins put Jesus, put your Son on the cross. B, I believe that you sent him there not just as a punishment for sin, but as a redemption for mankind. I believe that. And see, 
I choose to follow you every single day, which means that I don't simply revel in trying to be better, that I do my best to make your son known. It's in his name we pray. Amen.